Welcome, glad to have you with us. Seven minutes after 10 o'clock, uh, there is a, uh, a press conference being held in Iowa. Uh, this is uh, just about to start. It's about the uh, school shooting uh, in, a, in, uh, in Iowa, high school uh, uh, shooting. Uh, I've, I've had uh, long had uh, an opinion about what it takes to, to prevent this sort of thing from happening. Uh, and I'll talk about that in a little while. But first, it probably around 20 after. But first... We have the incredibly talented Brenda Talent with us. Uh, Brenda is uh, on board to discuss new legislative session and what issues that policymakers should be focusing on. She, of course, is with the Show Me Institute. Brenda, welcome. How are you? I am fine, Gary. Happy New Year to you. Oh, to you, too. Thank you for being on board. Uh, what, what do you think are the top issues that they should be looking at in Jeff City this session? Well, we're, we're sort of, we have a mantra. It's been going on for a few years because they just don't really wrestle with the issues that we've been talking about in a, in a really substantive ways. And so we talk about reducing taxes and regulations. They made some progress on that. We can make more. Um, education, they need, they, we are being left in the dust uh, by many of our surrounding states in the, the area of education. And when you look at the performance of our kids, uh, there's nothing to crow about because we are going in the wrong direction. And so I, I think that there's plenty for them to deal with. The big question for all of us is, will they or will they be dysfunctional again like they were last year? I'm betting dysfunctional, but, you know, I'm just a pessimist at heart. <laughs> well, I like to think that the glass is half full. <laughs> so I will remain hopeful that they will recognize that for the citizens of Missouri, they actually need to get their act together and do some things that advance our interest and help us prosper and really compete more effectively with many of our surrounding states. Well, it would it would be helpful if uh, we weren't limited to just two cities where we could have uh, charter schools. That is correct, and and you know, uh, Gary, that actually every school district has the uh, authority to sponsor a charter school. So, whether you're talking about Jefferson City, Springfield, those school districts, if those school boards wanted to, they could sponsor them. Of course, they never do. Um, but you know, if you if you look across our state, you have to scratch your head and say, why not? Aren't there aren't there parents in those school districts who would like you know a STEM school or a classical school or you know a performing arts school? I mean, you can go down the list of things that a school district could be creative about if they wanted to. That's why. But since no school district has done that, that's why we talk about the fact that if a school district won't do it, we need legislation that allows Missouri's um, charter school commission to go ahead and say, yeah, go ahead and start one. Um. One of the uh, uh, one senator uh, is, uh, that has been pushing to get rid of the personal property tax is Senator Bill Eigel, and I am solidly in his corner on this issue, uh, getting rid of it. Is there anybody else in the legislature that's pushing to do this? Is there anybody joining the the team, uh, you know, to get rid of the personal property tax? You know, I haven't focused on that, Gary. I know that there are a number of legislators who are recognizing that the way we tax property doesn't make sense, and there's got to be a better way to do it. And, of course, what we've seen is this piecemeal kind of thing where they try to carve out special interest groups. That's exactly the wrong way to do it. And so one of the things we've been talking about is really stepping back and creating the Taxpayer Bill of Rights 
that looks at our entire tax system and makes it more sensible, um, not where you're awarding special interest, keeping the tax base low, and not allowing government to grow. One of the problems we have in this state, Gary, and, and it's real like it's pretty insidious because we think we've got the Hancock Amendment. People think the Hancock Amendment protects us. Well, <clears throat> It actually doesn't anymore because of the way it's drafted. The language in it has allowed our government to grow out of control. And one of the things we're going to be talking about this year is what we really need are limitations on the growth of government. And so if we did that, and I mean, you can see this in Iowa, the governor there without legislation has really restricted the growth of government. And as a result, has been able to cut taxes, provide more choice for parents. I mean, they're doing some pretty innovative things in that state. And it's all because they're saying, you know, we don't need to allow government to grow like what is it top seed <laughs> um all right so i'm frustrated by the uh, by the amount of spending and the incredible growth it just it never stops um and 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 it's you know the republicans dominate the legislature and they're the ones that are always talking about reduced government and lower spending and lower taxes but they're not doing anything about it. And well, I, I would argue we don't have leadership at the top. I mean, look at what was proposed in the budget last year where we, because we were receiving all those federal funds, we put in place a number of programs. I mean, look at some of the child care programs that we put in place that, and, and with the expansion of Medicaid coverage that, um, that we're going to be on the hook for unless our legislators have enough backbone to say, you know what, this was a one-time deal because we have the federal money and we're not going to have the federal money anymore. But Gary, I'm not holding my breath that they're going to have the courage to do that. There goes that optimist that I knew so well just a few minutes ago. <laughs> it's, she's, she's on my side now. Oh, Lord. Uh, are you guys putting together a report at the Show Me Institute about uh, priorities for the legislature? Something that uh, listeners can... We absolutely have. It's already online. It's the Missouri Blueprint. In addition, we do have a new project, what we call Model Policy, and we've um, put out items for education where we're really trying to make it very simple for people who care about having policies in place that help our, our state move forward. So, you know, you don't have to think too hard. Just go to the website, showmeinstitute.org. If you want to look at the blueprint, there are 16 different policy recommendations there. And then if you go, uh, again, on the website and look at model policies, you can see stuff we're suggesting for education, like charter school expansion, open enrollment, um, education savings account. I mean, these are the things that other states are doing. These are not, you know, innovative, experimental things. It, it's tried and true policies that actually have had a positive effect in other states. And... Um, you know, we're, as we're looking again at our educational data, Gary, it is dismal. And um, I've just got to say, our Department of Elementary and Secondary Education has failed in their job. And all this back padding, someone should actually be kicking them in the butt because they've had a number of years to turn our education system around, and they haven't done it. Instead, they've created a system that's opaque, where kids continue to do worse, and then they have the gall. And I'm sorry, this is one of my, you know, push button issues they have the gall to tell us well you can't make judgments about this well at what point 
if, if you're having tests and you're not making judgments about them, why are you imposing those tests? Does that mean your tests are, 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 are basically incompetent? I mean, what are you doing? Um, so, in any case. That, well, why would you not want to make a judgment call? It's the future of the, of the, of the country. It's the next generation. You'd want to right. make sure you're getting them an education that is worthwhile. That is correct. And you can see the trends. I mean, you don't have to be a genius to figure out the trends in education in this state. And the fact that these so-called experts continue to basically provide cover for continuing this is, is I just think it's criminal. Well, I can't disagree with you. But if you head over to the website for the Show Me Institute, you can look at this blueprint and perhaps encourage legislators in your district to start moving in that direction. And Brent, your school boards. I mean, you can hold all of your elected officials accountable. Yeah, school board in Boone County of Columbia, I'm not so sure that... <laughs> I'm not so sure they can be moved. Uh, but I'm going to talk about that uh, in the final hour of the program uh, with Mike Murphy from ComoBuzz.com. Uh, all right, uh, Brenda, thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me, Gary. All right, take care. Brenda Talent. Uh, from the Show Me Institute. Okay, uh, we'll talk a little medicine and we'll talk San Fr uh, California and uh, losing jobs. That's next. Gary Nolan, Zimmer Radio Network. It is uh, 20 minutes after 10 o'clock. Glad to have you with us. Um, we are uh, We're going to talk with Ron Calzone in just a few minutes. Uh, Ron wants to uh, chat about uh, the December 19th Missouri Supreme Court uh, where they found uh, that House Bill 1606, which goes back to 2021, violated the single subject requirement for the Missouri Constitution. And, it's, it, and I don't see this happening uh, in Missouri very often. They seem to ignore that, the courts do. Uh, but the significance of Missouri's Supreme Court's ruling in Bird v. State uh, to state legislators. So we'll, uh, we'll kick that around with Ron Calzone, MoFirst.org. That's at uh, 1035. Um. I've been arguing for years about the downside to minimum wage. I studied economics. I know what happens when you artificially raise wages, when the government comes in and compels an employer to pay more for labor than labor is worth. And you're seeing this happen now in California. <clears throat> the most uh, well-reported story is that of Pizza Hut. Apparently... Uh, Pizza Hut is laying off their drivers. Uh, they're eliminating delivery jobs in, uh, in, in literally it's thousands of people. Um, over 1,200 uh, delivery positions will be cut, according to Business Insider, because they're raising the minimum wage in California. The hubris of the government to tell somebody you can't work for whatever wage you agree to work for. It's, it's, re it's really kind of offensive, if you ask me. But uh, it's also driving up the cost of pizza. Yeah, I, I, this is an argument I hear all the time from the minimum wage people. Well, you know, they're going to get a raise, and then they're going to be able to buy more products, and that's good for the economy. What they're not explaining is that it's inflationary. It drives up the prices of goods made by people who make minimum wage. It, it it correlates. Uh, apparently, a, a Pizza Hut pepperoni lover's pizza uh, goes from twenty one dollars fifty nine cents to twenty six thirty four, 
um, it, it it just makes the pizza a little harder for those few remaining employees to afford. So, the, the, in states across the country, they have, uh, and we've done this, uh, we, they've decided that you can raise minimum wage without at the state level, that somehow the state has the authority. States shouldn't have that authority any more than the federal government should. How much of a free market do you have when the government tells you how much you must pay somebody? And if, if you decided you wanted to do something just because you love doing it, if, if they would say to, to me, somebody would say to me, uh, Gary, we have all these 60s muscle cars and we need someone to take them out on the track uh, every week. Uh, blow the carbon out and drive them hard, um, and it pays $5 a week. I'd do it. I would take that. If it was $3 an hour, I would do that because I love, you know, uh, muscle cars from the 60s. But I wouldn't be able to accept that job. They couldn't offer me that opportunity because the state and federal government won't let me take it. It's a contract. It's a deal between me and someone who wants to hire me. And I can't take it because the government's involved. Anybody that thinks that's fair is sadly mistaken. But that's what, you know, these people keep pushing minimum wage like it's good for poor and low-skilled workers. And it's not. It gets them fired. It gets their hours cut back. It drives up prices. Uh, it 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 discourages people from ever hiring uh, low-skilled workers. They start looking at other means, uh, mechanical devices, electronic devices. You're, you're seeing these uh, restaurants in California where they're, they're, not, they're not just eliminating delivery drivers, but counter people, you know, the, the, the ones who say, uh, you want fries with that? Uh, they're putting up kiosks. So you walk up and you punch a bunch of buttons and it, and it eliminates a, a $22 an hour employee. But wait, there's more. There are now devices that will cook the hamburgers. They will literally cook the hamburgers. It's, it's They can even assemble the hamburgers. So, you know, eventually there'll be like one or two people that work the store, they'll be paid much more because they'll have more responsibility. Can't be a low-skilled worker because they're going to have to know how to fix the machinery if it does jam up. They'll have to know how to do things manually if they can't fix the machinery. But for the most part, minimum wage jobs will disappear. And that's how people get started. They take that minimum wage job, they learn something, they develop a reputation, they're dependable, they're there all the time, uh, and, and, and the next thing you know it, they're employable. But those opportunities will disappear. And California is proving it right now. Minimum wage, gosh, that, that just frustrates hell out of me. Really does. Uh, all right, 874-9390, toll free, 800-529-5572. There was a shooting in a high school in Iowa. 
and they are they just held a press conference on this. Uh, I didn't get to listen to the audio, but they just held a press conference. And we see these events happen in gun-free zones. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because I'm sure most of you have heard, heard me talk about it before. But they do this gun-free zone nonsense. And all it's doing, and I'm telling you right now, if you're listening to me and you're a, a member of the school board of Columbia uh, or Springfield or Jeff City or Lake of the Ozarks, you're listening to me right now, move forward on allowing faculty and staff at the schools in your district who are willing to carry concealed to do so. And then pay a sign maker to let everybody know that walks up to the door of that school that faculty and staff are armed. Because you're playing Russian roulette with the lives of these kids. Um, it's, it's, um, it's just silly to resist helping these, uh, you know, helping protect these kids. Uh, all right, uh, what do we have here? Uh, I don't have that information, Brian. Can you pass it on to me? It's not... Sorry about that. I was on the phone and doing some other stuff. But, uh, yeah, the latest information that uh, we've received from the Perry High School shooting in Iowa is that multiple people have been shot. Um, and the Dallas County Sheriff, Adam Infant, said at a news conference they have identified a shooter but have not released any more details. Uh, basically... Um, they responded to an active shooter early this morning before school started, which means that students were actually weren't there. Multiple injuries reported, but it's still unclear how many are injured and what the extent of those injuries are. And that, ladies and gentlemen, could be perhaps prevented. Uh, let me go to the phones very quickly, and I don't have a lot of time, so let me get Roger in, in Springfield. Good morning. Good morning. Say, yes, uh, last year I was in Tulsa. My wife and I stopped at a fast food restaurant, and it was fully automated. You had to order at a kiosk. You had to pay with a card, and your food came out on a shelf. And we didn't see anybody, didn't talk to anybody uh, other than just customers that were in there. So they just when, eliminated when I was going to, Yeah. When I was going to college, I used to work at a gas station all night. And uh, now self-serve put that out of business, too, you know. So yeah, I encourage people not to use self-serve because every job you take away is another person you're going to have to support. I would disagree. I would encourage people to um, use self-serve, uh, especially I if it wouldn't. saves them money uh, or keeps costs down because then they can afford to buy more themselves. All right, I got to run. Roger, thank you. Glad to have you on the Gary Nolan Show. Ron Calzone, MoFirst.org. He's going to be with us on a think tank Thursday. And he's uh, he's got a, a, this Missouri Supreme Court case, the bird versus the state, to talk about next on the Gary Nolan Show. This is the Gary Nolan Show. 
35 minutes after 10 o'clock. Glad to have you with us on a Think Tank Thursday. Uh, we are going to chat with Mike Murphy at uh, 11.05. Um, that'll be uh, kind of Columbia-related. And uh, we'll we'll talk about some topics that we've already covered, but we'll just get a little more in-depth. I'll, I'll get to that. I'm sorry? Uh, I, I, am I interrupting? No, Rod? Gary, am I on? Yeah. <laughs> okay, I'm, I didn't. I didn't know that I was live yet. So no, I was. I was. I was waiting to hear the uh, the the four digit code for your uh, uh, wall safe, but I, I you, you didn't reveal that. Um, no, the, no. the the dulcet tones of Ron Calzone, Mo First. Yeah, MoFirst.org. Uh, the significance of Missouri Supreme Court's ruling on Bird v. State. Let's start with what is Bird v. State. And then uh, one subject at a time, because I'm really I'm surprised that the courts even recognize it in Missouri. It seems like they don't most of the time. Well, okay, you alluded to earlier that we have clauses in the Missouri Constitution that say that each bill can only contain one subject at a time. And then there's other clauses that say that the title of the bill has to clearly state the purpose of the bill. And then you cannot change the purpose of a bill. We had those clauses in the Constitution since 1865 and 1875. <clears throat> Excuse me. And those are intended to make sh to ensure transparency in the legislative process so that both the people, the public, and also other legislators know what's in a bill, and legislators particularly before they have to vote on a bill. So back in, eight, in the 1800s, our forefathers didn't like Pelosi's idea that you have to pass a bill before you find out what's in it. And, and yet the problem is, is that um, the legislature largely in recent decades has ignored that and the courts have facilitated that, maybe even encouraged it through uh, pretty uh, arbitrary application or enforcement of those constitutional provisions. And, and as you pointed out, every once in a blue moon, they do get it right and they do strike down a bill because it has more than one subject in it or more rarely because they change the purpose of a bill. And that's what happened on December 19th, just a few weeks ago, uh, with House Bill 1606, which was a bill, contents of the bill don't matter necessarily, but the, the thing that Mr. Byrd and, and his co-plaintiffs had against it is, is it outlawed camping on public property. So it was, so people that are advocates of the homeless didn't like this bill and they challenged it. And, and the, uh, originally the trial court said, no, the bill's constitutional, and then the Missouri Supreme Court unanimously said uh, it was passed using unconstitutional procedures. Interesting. Well, I'm just frustrated by the Missouri Supreme Court because time and time again, they, they don't enforce it. Um, and I can think of a couple of cases uh, in the last several years that uh, I would have thought, well, th they can't say yes to this. this it, it's not one subject. So I'm well, kind of surprised. And, I, and, I, and, of course, you know that I've, I've litigated some cases like that, and I've, I've won and I've lost doing it. You know, and it's, um, it's the problem that I've found is, is that their application is very arbitrary. There's not a, any good clear-cut rules. But the thing that is um, most, to me, it's significant to me, I think, is the fact that the court gives a lot of deference to legislators. You know, basically they say, the people in that building across the street, because the Supreme Court building is across the street from the Missouri State Capitol, uh, they're, they're adult men and women. They took an oath to defend the Constitution just like we did. 
and and we're and we are not experts in the legislative process and there's this thing called separation of powers and so they give them a lot of deference in their process and and that hasn't changed necessarily except for the fact that this case i think helps to underscore the fact that they can't be again arbitrary in the way that they enforce it if it, if it's a bill they don't like the court might be more likely to strike it down if it's something that they do like they might be more likely to to say no the legislature got it right so none of that is really remarkable about this case but there is a remarkable aspect and this is what this is the lesson that i hope that our legislators will get out of it for many 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 years the courts have been practicing something called judicial severance so normally by statute a bill is non-severable i'm sorry i'm sorry i mean i misspoke Normally, by statute, a bill is automatically severable unless the bill itself says that it's non-severable. And that means that if part of a law, a new law or a bill, is found to be unconstitutional, the rest of it is severed from that and it remains law. So only the offending part is stricken and declared to be unconstitutional. Now, that's um, been applied to by the courts arbitrarily. So they would say that if we find this part to be the new subject, the changed subject, the additional subject of a bill, they would sever that from the rest of the bill and they would let the, the original underlying bill continue to be law. And so the problem with that is, is that if you're a bill sponsor and someone says, hey, can I amend my language to your bill? If you do let me do that, I'll vote for your bill. Then that bill sponsor has no disincentive to keep his bill pure and follow the constitution because he has, he has reason to believe that even if his bill is challenged in court, found to be unconstitutional, that his original bill will still survive. And so that's what's changed. So this time, uh, and, and by the way, Judge Fisher, who's been this, he's one of the more senior Supreme Court judges, has been railing against that for years. And he would write uh, concurring opinions saying, yeah, this bill is unconstitutional, but I would throw out the whole bill uh, well, finally, they're starting to do that. And with this Bird case, that's what they did. They did not sever. The whole bill went down, all of the provisions, including the original portion of the bill. And, and the reason they did that is they, they looked back accurately to the, to the landmark 1994 Hammersmith opinion when Chip Robertson, then Chief Justice Chip Robertson, wrote the opinion. And he said that unless the case can be made beyond reasonable doubt that the bill would have passed absent the offending clauses, the, the change subject language, unless somebody can make the case that would have passed um, without that, then we have to throw the whole thing out. And finally, that's what this court did. Well, it's about time, and let's hope they continue to practice that logic uh, and if you and, and it could come back to bite me on, on issues that I like, uh, but you know it, there ought to be a consistent uh, barometer uh, for uh, one subject at a time and every other law. Well, that's right, and and we need again. You know, the reason this is significant to legislators is they need to understand that number one, if it's their bill, the underlying bill, they so they worked their bill, they got it through the process. Uh, they've done all the hard work and their bills on the floor and somebody comes to them or maybe they don't come to them and they say, I want to amend this language to, to this bill because it's moving and my bill's not moving. My bill can't make it on its own. I want to attach it to your bill. 
then that underlying bill sponsor needs to be, he needs to weigh the consequences of doing that. It's, if it's going to make it more likely for the for what he's worked hard on to ultimately get thrown out in court, and maybe he needs to guard it and say, no, I do not want your language on my bill. Tell the rest of the body, do not let this language go on my bill and, and protect it. And then, of course, the people that want to amend their language to the bill need to understand that, uh, you know, because typically what happens is the bills become a Christmas tree, and it's not just one other legislator that's attaching his language to this moving bill. It might be a dozen others. And, you know, and so they all may go down. So this is a very, very good development. It should be incentive for legislators to guard the process, follow the Constitution more accurately, you know, not just because it's the right thing to do because they took an oath, but for practical reasons, because their language, their legislation may go down with the rest of it. It's accountability, uh, and it's about time. All right. Uh, Ron, have you uh, written about this at MoFirst.org? I have not yet. I've been too busy to do that. I intend to do, you know, maybe write an open letter to legislators so they can understand the implication of this. Um, it's it just should it just should change the the way they look at things. And you know, again, the underlying case, the fact that it was found unconstitutional, is not remarkable in itself. But it, this seems to be a shift in the court's practice of judicial severance. All right, I'm keep my fingers crossed, Ron Calzone. MoFirst.org. Ron, thank you, buddy. I hope you have a, a very happy new year. Thank you, uh, by the way, for asking about my bride. Uh, she is coming along uh, very well. Uh, people uh, have, uh, occasionally will ask about how Gwen is doing since the surgery. She is a That's remarkable great. woman who has demonstrated incredible courage and strength. Uh, she's back working after probably one of the most brutal surgeries uh, I've ever seen anybody go through. Wow. And... Uh, She's well, you not know, all of those years of developing courage and strength, you know, having been married to you, probably has served well for this <laughs> I, I toughened her up. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, living with me? Yeah, that's, that was kind of intimating. That anyway. Yeah. yeah uh, who can we get for this slot next week, Brian? Because uh, Calzone's out. He's done. We'll find somebody. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> all right, Ron. Thank you, buddy. Thank you, Gary. All right, buddy. Take care. Glad to have you on the Gary Nolan Show. Uh, the implication there. Uh, all right, a uh, little bit about global warming, and uh, then uh, we'll talk with Mike Murphy, Como Buzz with 1Z.com. Dave Rowland should be with us as well on Think Tank Thursday. It is uh, 10.51. I knew I'd get that out. I just had to check the clock. I had to look over there. Uh, we do have Dave Rowland coming on. He'll be on about oh, 20 minutes after 11. Uh, but before that happens, Mike Murphy is going to be with us. Como Buzz, that's with one Z. Um, we, we've got a couple of uh, local stories that I want to cover with him, but I uh, I got some things that I kind of want to cover before we run out of time. One of them dealing with global warming. Great piece. Brian found this at uh, the Liberty Daily. Uh, narrative buster. Real climate scientists say we should embrace higher CO2 levels. Uh, it's a great piece uh, at thelibertydaily.com. Thelibertydaily.com. The is actually part of that article is right in front. Thelibertydaily.com. Um, the earth, uh, you know, the, we, we, keep tell, we, we keep hearing this message that we need to phase out CO2 and carbon fuels and we've got to be carbon neutral and the world is coming to an end and oh my God, CO2 is doing it. Um, the United Nations is telling us this. Uh, 
Al Gore is telling us this. The United States government is telling us this. In oh, fact, yeah. uh, the United States uh, uh, spent $1.2 billion on carbon-sucking vacuums <laughs> to pull carbon dioxide pollution from the air. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and you know when they make an investment, when they spend money, oh, it's definitely, <laughs> definitely oh, a waste. Yeah. Uh, so uh, apparently, um, according to some experts, like uh, Patrick Moore, co-founder of Greenspeace, the whole thing is a total scam. There's actually no scientific evidence that CO2 is responsible for climate change over the eons. Uh, Mr. Moore said that over the past few decades, the climate message has continually changed. First, it was global cooling. Then it was global warming. Then it was climate change. Now it's disastrous weather. They're saying that all the tornadoes and hurricanes and the floods and the heat waves are all caused by CO2. Uh, and he says that's a lie. We're part of the cycle, he said. We don't need CO2. For us, it's a waste product. We need oxygen, but plants are the ones who made the oxygen for us, and, and we're making the CO2 back for them. Um, it, it, and it's actually good for plant life. We're replenishing the atmosphere with CO2 up to a level that is much more conducive to life and growth of plants in particular. And when you go back and look at some of the numbers... Uh, in 1925, there was an average 484,880 climate-related deaths. This is according to Human Progress. Since then, it has decreased. The latest report from 2020 shows 14,893 climate-related deaths. We went from about a half a million to less than 15,000 climate-related deaths. The world is not coming to an end because we're using carbon fuels. CO2, they're portraying it as the cause of damaging extreme weather. But research uh, indicates the extremes are not becoming more intense or frequent. The CO2 cannot be the cause of something not occurring. It, it's, it, it's an eye-opener. We're, we're putting ourselves through this hell. We're, we're lying to young kids in schools. We're acting like this is settled science. And it's not. There was hysteria about the, the new ice age. Uh, and apparently that's from some CIA report in 1974 that claimed a major climatic change was underway. Uh, then global cooling alarm is morphed into its opposite. Uh, we get the global, global warming thing uh, from CO2. Uh, chemically a falsehood. When you find out how much CO2 has been historically in the atmosphere, you realize this is all Bravo Sierra. This is all nonsense. Uh, going back 150 million years ago, CO2 was somewhere between 2,000 and 2,500 parts per million. Generally, atmospheric CO2 is low, around 180 parts per million uh, during glacial periods and higher during interglacials, according to the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Before the industrial era, uh, era back around 1750, CO2 was about 280 parts per million and was that way for several thousand years. 
The current peak level in the atmosphere is around 420 parts per million. This is from NOAA. That's where those, those numbers come from. That's a good thing. And this push for net zero is disastrous. They're lying to your kids. CO2 is only 0.42% of the atmosphere. And the fact of the matter is plants would prefer between 1,500 and 2,000 parts per million for optimum growth. If you go to a greenhouse, sophisticated greenhouses, you will find they purposely increase the CO2 level in their greenhouses to somewhere between 800 and 1,200 parts per million. Well, we need to regulate those. Yeah, those dirty rats. <laughs> it is, this, the whole thing is a damned hoax. We're building these battery-powered cars. We're outlawing regular cars. We're regulating gas stoves and dishwashers and ceiling fans and air conditioners and furnaces and hot water tanks. We're passing all of these rules, all of these regulations over a damned hoax. Driving up prices, the inconvenience of some of these products, it's ridiculous. I'm not saying we should be, you know, wasting natural resources. I'm not suggesting, it, though it's not a good idea, uh, that it's not a good idea to up-insulate your hot water tank. Uh, or that we should use light bulbs that use less energy. I'm good with all of that. But it should be voluntary. Because if I'm not making a lot of money, an incandescent light bulb is worth pennies, uh, you know, compared to those expensive uh, uh, LED lights. I should be able to make that choice. You can't do that on your own. Why not? Well, because you're too stupid. Yeah, that seems to be the mentality. Uh, I, the fact that we have destroyed economy. I mean, literally, we are spending hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars building an infrastructure for cars that nobody wants all because of this hoax about CO2. It's, it's crazy-making. And look at these stupid kids. They've been in... Well, they're not stupid. I guess they're ignorant. They've been told that this is a catastrophic problem. So they go to uh, 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 automobile manufacturers and glue themselves to hoods. And they glue themselves to roads and interrupt traffic and I mean they're doing all kinds of stupid things because they believe their world is coming to an end it's nonsense alright it's the Gary Nolan Show the Zimmer Radio Network this is the Gary Nolan Show 